When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the England Show on The Athletic. I'm joined today by The Athletic's George Culkin, Ollie Kay, and Dan Bardell for a very special show. England faced Scotland at Wembley on Friday night, but today we're going to go back 25 years to the last time the two nations faced each other in a major tournament, which was, of course, at Euro 96. Now, George, along with Alan Shearer, has written a brilliant article for The Athletic on the game, the whole tournament. There is an awful lot of emotion and plenty of memories in that article. And today we're going to hear from the players featured in it. So that's Paul Ince, Teddy Sheringham, Gary McAllister and Gaza. If you want to read it, then you go to theathletic.com slash Pod, and you can sign up for just £1 a month. So theathletic.com slash Pod, and you get The Athletic for just £1 a month. This is The England Show from The Athletic. So welcome to Wembley for England against Scotland, the oldest international fixture of them all. First played way back in November 1872. That one finished 0-0. The hopes are that this one will have a few goals as well. And as is the custom in this 1996 European Championships, a handshake between the teams as a prelude to the battles that will come ahead in the next 90 minutes. Before we hear from the players uh, and Alan and, and discuss the tournament, let's just find out where we all were in the in the summer of 1996. I have a feeling that one person on this panel is going to make the, the other three of us feel really old. Uh, let's start with George. I was on a holiday in Portugal for certainly the first couple of weeks of the tournament. So, my, I mean, my memory is not the best anyway, but there was certainly a lot of beer... <laughs> There was there was a beer influence to that uh, to that loss of memory as well. So I was in yeah I was I was uh, I was in Portugal in a in a bar or two watching it that way, which is a pretty great way of watching it actually. Yeah, I think I'm going to be through a beer haze as well, really, because I'd I'd finished my postgrad in broadcast journalism and was uh, and was joining the BBC later on that year. So I kind of had a, a free summer just to watch all the football and I was living in London at the time. So it, it was a it was it was a magical a magical summer really. We'll come to Ollie last. This is where Dan you tell us you were four and can't remember any of it or something, is it? I mean this is a rare moment where I actually get to feel young doing a podcast. So I was I was ten. So <laughs> ten. I was more I was more in a sunny delight haze <laughs> rather than rather than a beer haze. So <laughs> I, I just remember being at my mum and dad's friends in in a garden, and then we all all watched the game. Then I was out in the garden trying to recreate Gaza's goal, but I wasn't a very good footballer, and I'm still not a very good footballer, so did, didn't do a very good job of that. But yeah, I was ten, and it was my my first tournament experience, and it's never been bettered, really, to be honest. No, that, that, that's what I was going to say. So it was your first one. You can't really remember. I mean, World Cup '94 was a bit uh, anyhow, unless you're Irish, in which case, obviously, it was it, it was great. It was World Cup '94, but but for 
and if you were eight in English, I would imagine World Cup 94 kind of passed you by a bit, did it? Well, I did watch it because at the time yeah. I was just, I think I'd just got my Villa season ticket. So I was just starting going to Villa every week and there was four Villa players obviously in that Ireland side. So I supported Ireland just yeah. because there was four Villa Villa players in there and England weren't in there. So I didn't really have a great understanding of, of why England weren't there. But I just went with Ireland. But yeah, Euro 96 was just something different, a complete different level and different class to, to what I'd seen before. Was there a sticker book in Euro 96? Like, because for my first tournament, which was Spain 82, I still have the sticker book some, somewhere in my house, completed full. My, my favourite tournament ever, because it was my first one, which is similar for Euro 96 with you. But was there a sticker book? I don't remember having a sticker book. I remember having, right. you know, the, the football men with the big heads. Yes, I, yeah, I had, yeah. I had yeah. all the England ones of them and all, all the villa all the villa ones. And actually I'll tell a little story, it might not be that interesting at all. It might be a stupid <laughs> story to tell. But when England got knocked out in the in the semi-final, I was in tears crying. Obviously, a villa player had missed the penalty as well. And my, my mom's quite busy around the house, like she never stops cleaning, never stops tidying up. And Southgate obviously missed the penalty. And it sounds like a complete lie, but it's genuinely true. I went upstairs to go to bed, and they all used to be on like a shelf, and Gareth Southgate had fell on the floor. So like now all the football men were up on his shelf and when I got upstairs Gareth Southgate the big head was on the floor and it honestly sounds made up but I swear that that is genuinely true <laughs> it was a sign it exactly. was a sign uh Ollie where were you what were you doing yeah very very similar to you um I'd I'd um I just turned 21 I just finished my university finals I was in Birmingham uh, at the time and um probably down the road from Dan um uh and it was um yeah it was Again, like you, like George, a very um, a very hazy month for for, for 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 one reason or another. I mean, it was it was you know I, I graduated. I had no real. I had this vague idea that I wanted to do journalism, but I hadn't applied for any courses or anything like that. So I had this sort of massive gap in my uh, life about what I was going to do next. And um, I think for um, for that month, all um, all such worries were put to one side as um, I just sort of. Had uh, one very long boozy afternoon after another, watching watching England and and practically anybody else. Yeah, anybody else. Yeah, you just just drank it all in, didn't we? Um, so this is going to be uh, Euro '96 through the eyes of uh, three middle-aged men, maybe a dog, uh, uh, and a much younger uh, man, plus the players who played during this tournament. Because George, you've done this piece uh, with Alan Shearer and. For Alan, you know, we've talked about what this tournament means for us already in relation to where we were in our lives. Did you find with Alan and with the players that you spoke to that this is the tournament that still has a very special place in their hearts? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And for Alan, incredibly important because he'd gone almost two years before that tournament without scoring a goal for England. I mean, he was absolutely in his pomp at Blackburn. So he was scoring, you know, scoring 34, 34, 37 goals a season at Blackburn, but had that sort of really sort of traumatic spell for, for, for England not scoring. And, you know, he says in that piece that he feared that if he didn't score a goal pretty early, that it might be the end of his England career, which is pretty astonishing, really, when you sort of then look back on how on how good he was. And but there's this sort of amazing narrative arc, if I can use that phrase, which I think probably goes back to 1990, which was probably the most important tournament in my living living memory for England and for football in general in this country because of what it meant. But you had all those little, you had all those sort of little echoes. At Euro 96. So it was the moment when football kind of exploded again in this country in 1990. And 
we had the disappointment of England going out, but it was Gaza again. It was Gaza again at Scotland. It was Stuart Pearce and redemption. It was Gareth Southgate taking on that sort of mantle of, uh, of, of agony, but it was also at home and it was also that sort of build through the tournament, that, that momentum and that feeling going sort of behind it. It was Germany again. There was the absolutely sort of brilliant performance against, against Holland. And then probably the sort of the big, the big sort of moment was that Scotland game because of the pressure England found themselves in. And so, yeah, it was this magical summer, but it was this magical summer for the players as well. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about the pressure they were under before the tournament because of sort of off-pitch stuff that had gone on in the summer. It was a very different environment with the media. It was ferocious back then. It sort of all came together in that summer. And it's, you know, it's the best, I think it's the best England have played at a tournament that I can remember, certainly the Holland game. You know, when Shearer says, we took them on at Total Football and we and we hammered them. We'll come on to that in a, in a little while. But as, as George says, um, the, the, the relationship between the players and the media was ferocious, particularly before the tournament had even started because there was the pre-tournament trip to Hong Kong. Here's Teddy Sheringham and Alan and Gaza with their recollections of that infamous night out and the reaction that followed it. A guy come over and just fancy the dentist chair. I says, come on, we'll give it a go. So obviously, me being me, was I went for it. And obviously, then the rest, I says, come on, you've got to do it. And then they did it. And then I just come to the time where uh, obviously we're all having fun and then it just got carried away. And then I never thought anything of it. I just thought it was a great night and that. Just got carried away, too excited, I suppose, the person I am and that. But it wasn't until, obviously, when me family calls up and says, fucking hell, have you seen the, well, excuse the language, but have you seen the papers? And obviously, I was a bit devastated. And then, obviously, uh, and then on the flight come back, I was thinking about it, and I thought, oh, I hope we're not getting in trouble. I think all that, that what happened out there, it brought a nice unity. Venables had a lovely way of bringing the team together. Then he had his whole squad together. Didn't really bother me, really. It was like a case of we was allowed out. All right, we went a little bit reckless on the night out, but it was our one night out two weeks before the start of a major competition. Ain't that big a deal, really, the way I see it. The press made a big deal, but, you know, Terry Terry just said, let's come together and be that unified squad and, you know, let's get on yeah. with it. So He sort of used it to his advantage, Terry, in terms of, he, I mean, he, he didn't cause a big fuss. He, he, he accepted what it was and sort of, treated us like he had to and, and got on with it and used it as an advantage to say, well, we probably owe him one to go into the tournament and do well. What people don't realise, Al, is that, you know, everyone went back to the family, but what I did is I went to, it was so funny, I, I went and I got in a taxi and I went all the way to Wales and I stayed in a hotel and I went to this hotel and I said to the guy, listen, I've done something wrong. I says, um, I, I'm going to stay here for a couple of weeks while uh, before the Euro 96. And he went, I says, does any press turn up? And he went, no. He says, you grandstand, yeah. And no, no, no paparazzi's turned up. And I went, okay. And then after about now, he went, you're not going to believe this. I, I said, I am. How many? He went, about 30. So I got on the boat, I, pad, I pedal, I mean, I rode across the um, lock. I got the other side and I see in a little hotel. Then I went to the health farm for uh, about five days and just trained and tried to get myself well. And then... Obviously, I've seen the newspapers like kick as out the, the Euro 96. So I was a bit worried then. You know, I was, just, I was quite fortunate that Terry Venables was my manager. I taught him and he knew the sort of person I was, you know. In the 90s, when I used to hear people talk, George, about 
what they did in the 60s, you know, and a glass of stout in the dressing room afterwards. I, I, I used to think, God, how ridiculous. Has, hasn't football moved on? And now I sit here in 2021 listening to that, an England player, England's best player, rowing across a lake to try and, to try and avoid the press, having I mean, been in a dentist chair in Hong Kong. And it, it is like, it's like another world. It's like, how on earth did that happen? Well, he says on the plane that he was worried about the reaction back home, but actually on the plane was was when even more mayhem took place. There's a great story in one of Gascoigne's autobiographies where he talks about Dennis Wise crawling into one of the overhead lockers just to get some sleep and to get away from Gaza. And an FA official comes up the stairs to tell them to keep the noise down and Gaza tells them to fuck off. I mean, it's very difficult to sort of turn back the clock and sort of sort of understand that. But it was a different time. I don't think there was anything wrong with that idea of giving them a night out a couple of weeks before the start of the tournament. But obviously it got very, very messy. And it's then on the front pages of every paper. And football back then, certainly Gaza, were part of the circulation war that was happening. It was very similar in 1990 as well, when kind of Bobby Robson, he'd been at the sort of fulcrum of that battle, really sort of vicious circulation war. And it was a different time. And, you know, that was the pressure that they were all coming into in the tournament, where papers were having votes on whether Gaza should be kicked out of the squad. I should say also that not all of the memories from Gaza are reliable. I mean, I think that's that's something to say. I mean, I think I've seen other versions where he got to Wales, found the paparazzi waiting for him and immediately left. So, you know, the, the, discovering the truth from some of this stuff, it was was actually quite was actually quite difficult. It evidently helped them, didn't it, Ollie? Because there are there are they all talk about Venables as management of that of that situation and the reaction that followed. I remember the sort of reaction to it in the build-up and, and, and you know, play, players were being in, interviewed about it and they were very much putting on a united front. I mean, it was clear that not all of the players had been as culpable as each other. It wasn't, it wasn't um, it, you know, some players, had, 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 I think Gary Neville and Phil Neville had been tucked up in bed in Hong Kong while, while all this mayhem was going on. And I think I'm right in saying Tony Adams opted out of that night out because he didn't trust himself because he knew he, he knew he had a, a problem in terms of drink. I think that's, I think that's correct. It wasn't a case where they were all sort of equally to blame, whether it was for the, 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 the night out in Hong Kong or the, or the damage done on the, um, to, to the, to the, to, to the, to the plane on the flight back, which was, uh, which was something else. There was this sort of sense from, Venables and amongst all the players, we will all take collective responsibility for it. And that, 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 I think that was probably the first time I ever heard that phrase used in a sporting context, collective res- responsibility. And, and it, it did appear to, I mean, it, it was said at the time, and it's certainly uh, been said in, in, in the reminiscences that, that they've all had over the years, that it really did bring them together and it created that sort of siege mentality you know the media are out to get us the public are out to get us we need to pull together we need to reward our manager who's who's sort of taking the flack on our, our behalf and that that kind of thing in in the in the build up to a tournament I, I don't think the media coverage was helpful in any way and yet it did somehow it was sort of used as a as a sort of galvanizing unifying force within the, within the camp so sometimes when you know it, when we look at the media coverage and and when it is all negative, obviously sometimes it can it can really create that negative those negative vibes in the in the camp. But it feels like on that occasion it really did the opposite. It really unified them. Not that anybody in the media should be taking any credit for that. No, absolutely. And it it, it is difficult, isn't it, Dan? When you listen to it, to to disagree with Teddy Sheringham and George has mentioned it that you know two weeks out from a tournament on an overseas trip they. 
they are allowed a night out. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it sounded quite reasonable. I mean, at, at the time, I would have probably been been quite been quite oblivious to it. Like, I, I would have just assumed they'd been to the dentist or something. Like, I wouldn't have really understood <laughs> what was going on. But I mean, if, if, I still think now if players are on on time off and they've got permission to do as do as they please. Let them live. That they're human beings. But I, I just wonder how much Gareth Southgate, the manager has taken away from that time because obviously he would have been a big part of what was going on. I don't know whether he was on that night out, but you think of his strength as being man management and Terry Venables seems his strength was, was the same, the man management. So I just wonder how much Southgate has taken away from a tough time like that. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, everybody now remembers, I mean, sort of doing these interviews with with Paul Ince and Teddy Sheringham and Alan, they all sort of saying the same thing about Gareth, that he was the kind of quiet one. I mean, and that none of them sort of really expected him to go on to be to become a manager, certainly not an England manager, because he was, you know, when you when you think back to the characters in that team and the the kind of leaders in that team, whether it was Tony Adams or Shearer himself or or Ince or Gascoigne. I mean, pretty sort of ferocious personalities, some of them. But of course, and definitely the venerable side of it is incredibly important. The players, I mean, I might, you know, I haven't, I, I, I don't sort of know all those players, but they, they seem to a man to have absolutely loved venerables, not only because yeah. of the way he treated them, but very sort of tactically astute. But the way he handled that was perfect. It was pitch, pitch perfect. He didn't hang any of them out to dry. He took, he sort of took responsibility for it, and they 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 knew that they owed him. You know, they knew that they owed him. And you know, there was another very clever bit of man management on that trip. We I spoke a bit about Shearer at the start, but Venables pulled Shearer in China and said to him, "Look, you're not going to play every minute here, but you're my number nine for the first game against Switzerland. And so Shearer had that feeling as well. They loved him. He gave them freedom. You can argue he gave them too much freedom on that particular night. Should be pointed out, by the way, that Brian Robson was out. His number two was out there drinking with them. So it was a little bit difficult for for for, for them to get, you know, told off too much. But um, no, it definitely pulled them all together. Let's move on to the tournament uh, itself. Um, and maybe the reality is, is perhaps a bit different to what some people Remember, England weren't great in that opening game against Switzerland, a one-all draw at Wembley. And they were struggling against Scotland in the first half as well. So here's Paul Ince and Gary McAllister with their memories of the two games. Going back to the Switzerland game, it wasn't a great game. You know, it wasn't a great game. And, um, I mean, we got we, we had a great start, obviously, you scoring. And, um, but we, all, we know how from playing international football and playing those international tournaments that the first game is always tough. You know, the first mm. one, you just, you don't want to get beat. You can't afford yeah. to get beat. You know, yeah, we fancied ourselves against Switzerland, but, you know, you can't you can't afford to drop in, to drop two, three points in, 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 in a group stage. And, um, you know, as much as it was disappointing, the 1-1 draw, we knew the Scotland game was going to be tough. We knew that was going to be tough. You know, we, we, we did, you know, we knew the Holland game was going to be tough. So it was quite a tough group when you think about it, Al. So when you don't get the three points against, against Switzerland, you think, fuck me, we got fucking Scotland, which is obviously... I thought centrally, because we had the overload, we had more players in the middle of the park. You know, it was just Gaza and Insey, where yeah. we had we had Stuart McCall, Johnny Collins, and myself. I thought we won the middle of the park, and and mm-hmm. well, that the football and wise, we'd stopped you guys from playing. I wouldn't say that we were creating loads and loads of chances, but we fit, we felt as if we had good possession, and we're getting into your, into your backline a wee bit better than you were getting into our back line. 
it was, wasn't it? It, it was laborious, Ollie, uh, at the start for England. You could lump the first the first game against Switzerland in with the first half against Scotland. It, it was it was poor, really. I mean, there was the, the early Shearer goal. I, I, I was um, against Switzerland. I was just looking back, and it confirmed what my sort of hazy memory told me, which was that obviously England had they hadn't qualified for the ninety four World Cup, so so basically they hadn't had a, a competitive game for nearly three years. Graham Taylor had, had, had been sacked, and Terry Reynolds had come in, and they had all these warm up matches, almost all of them at Wembley where it was just nil-nils and one-ones and he was experimenting and sort of Christmas tree formation and three at the back and all all kinds of different formations and never really sort of, nothing ever really clicked, which is probably reflected in um, Alan's goal-scoring record at, at the time and the fact that, you know, the, the team was scoring very few goals. And then, obviously, great start against Switzerland, but by, I don't know, probably by by the half hour mark, it was really, um, it was really sort of looking like a slog and they, you know, they clung on and conceded a late penalty, which the Swiss scored and it was 1-1. And the, the build up to that Scotland game was very kind of negative, really, in terms of, you know, there's a lot of criticism, there's a lot of scepticism about the team, about Venables, about how they were going to play. The first half was really poor. I was just looking back and seeing that Gareth Southgate played in, in midfield in front of a back three in that first half. And what really changed it, I know everybody remembers, um, I mean, Alan was saying in that piece that nobody remembers his opening goal. People only ever remember the Gaza goal that came next. But what really changed it, and what I think has been forgotten in the midst of time, is Jamie Redknapp came on in uh, in midfield at, at half time. And, you know, there was a switch there. England now had sort of three against three in central midfield. And that was the, I mean, Redknapp was only on for, a, I don't know, it was probably 30, 40 minutes or so. And then he got injured. But that sort of cameo from him was really the catalyst to the second half of improvement because the first half was awful. They were clinging on, as as Gary McAllister says, and 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 Scotland were the better team. And it all it all changed with a overlapping run and cross from Gary Neville and the, and the, and the header from Shearer in the early in the second half. But but as Ollie mentioned, Dan, you know, England had come into this tournament on the back of no competitive games two years because they qualified. Not qualifying for the World Cup in '94. Actually, Euro '92 had been utterly miserable as well. From from an, I mean, it had been awful from an England perspective. So actually, ever since the high of Italia '90, England had been had been doing that so they were needing a spark from somewhere as a country I watched the game back last night as I say my memories of it wouldn't be great at all but I watched it last night and I I was really surprised by it because as a kid just remembering how good I thought the tournament was it surprised me watching the game back and seeing how how slow and turgid England were in that first half and I I agree with what Gary McAllister was saying I I thought Scotland looked comfortable and arguably were the better side but as Ollie's gone on to say Jamie Redknapp coming on I mean I've got that team that played in the second half in front of me now and I look at it and it looks preposterous really because it's a, a three five it's a three five two with, with no wing backs which is not really something that, that I remember having ever seen in, in, in my lifetime so you've got Anderton and McManaman on the flanks with, with midfield three and a back three behind them Shearer and Shearing up front and it, it was Gary Neville on the overlap from right centre back a bit like a, a Sheffield United centre half of, of a couple of years ago coming in and, and putting the cross in and Alan Shearer says that no, no one remembers his goal but for some reason when I was a kid, I had like an irrational love of, of Gary Neville. So I was more buzzing about Gary Neville's cross for Alan Shearer than I was about Gaza's goal. So 
Alan can sleep well because I remember that goal. That's a very odd thing. I know. To I, was odd, that, I was an odd child. I was an odd child, Mark. A very odd child. <laughs> the other thing with Alan, George, as you will be well aware, Alan remembers every single one of his goals and is then is then deeply offended when you don't remember every single one of his goals, which I I don't. You as you with your Newcastle connections will remember every single one of them. But as I tell Alan regularly, I used to boo him for the majority of his career. So you know, I try to I try to forget most of his goals. No, that's right. He and he describes that goal against Scotland as the as the sort of the big forgotten goal because everyone talks about everyone talks about Gaza. I mean, the other thing to, to mention about Scotland, I mean, so England had put themselves under pressure with that first that first game against Switzerland. Gaza had been substituted. He wasn't sure that he was even going to stay in the team and kind of had had sought out Venables for for reassurance the night before. And it's a different Scotland as well. It's not just a different England. It was a different Scotland back back then. They'd missed out on 94, the same as England. But this was a Scotland team who were used to qualifying for major tournaments back then, who were kind of who were kind of pretty regular. And uh, sort of we say in the piece that it's it's impossible to sort of avoid those cliches. But this is a massive, it's a massive derby game. You know, that's the equivalent. And you know that it's going to be a physical battle. And I think England went out with that sense that the first thing that they had to do was match Scotland's physicality. And so they just didn't settle. They didn't settle in the game. And hearing that clip from Gary McAllister, he was actually responding to Alan saying to him, it was pretty even, wasn't it, in the first half? And he he took exception to that. He didn't, you know, he because his, you know, his very clear memory was that Scotland actually were on top. And Ollie's absolutely spot on. It was that it was changing things at half time and putting that extra body into midfield that gave England a bit of space there, that gave you know, that gave Gascoigne license to do his stuff because they'd really been struggling. And it was a match, it could have gone either way. And by the way, just one final word word on this. You know, if you if you are a bit younger and, and don't remember a lot of that of of, of your United States or the Scotland team, Ollie. That that Scotland midfield of McAllister, McCall, and Collins that has a that has a beautiful balance to it. I mean, that is a seriously good midfield. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people might remember Gary McAllister from the sort of back end of his career at, at Liverpool, but you know, for for years, you know, at um, Leicester and 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 Leeds and Coventry, you know, McAllister was a very graceful, elegant midfielder. Yeah. John Collins very elegant as well, and then Stuart McCall was a real feisty. I was going to say t- sort of typical feisty Scottish um, midfielder, but, but but he's he was he's a Yorkshireman. You know, he he was you know extremely feisty in, in in the middle of the park and could play a bit as well. So it was it was a really good midfield. And England had gone sort of you know with Southgate and then with Ince and Gascoigne um, against them, and you know, he wasn't working in that first half. They that those Scotland midfielders were were getting the upper hand as as um, Gary McAllister says. Uh, let's deal with the. Uh... With how the game changed in the space of a few minutes, we'll, we'll come on to Gaza's iconic goal uh, in just a moment, and we'll f- hear from Gaza on that. But first, here's Gary McAllister on his penalty miss and what went through his head when the ball moved. Now let's see whether McAllister's nerve will hold. Yeah! A brilliant save! McAllister holds his head. Scotland denied an equalising goal. Listen, the reason why I've never revisited the game is because it's supposed to be a very good day for me as far as yeah. you know, missing. It's, it's now clear to everybody's eye. If I'd gone out after the game and said that the ball had moved, it would have been one of the almightiest excuses ever. But the ball did move. 
and I, I'm, and I talk quite freely about it now, you know, and, and you know when you hit a penalty and when you plant your left foot, when you're right-footed and you plant your lefty strike and you're right on the ball and it moves, I had a million things in a millisecond happen inside my brain. So you because you were aware you were aware then when the ball moved that split second before you hit it you were aware of the ball all ball moving yeah you know the timing of it I was literally about to release the shot and the ball sort of flipped over so I was thinking am I going to stop and run the risk of bumping into the ball or are they uh, you know try to swipe above it or you know all these things and in my yeah. I suppose the mechanism that just kicked in was I'll just lash it. And, and I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I didn't smash penalties down the middle. Mm. I generally I went for I had a stop penalty. And if I seen the keeper go early, I would I would change it. But I was too far down my run-up to change and, and I just lashed it. And obviously David makes a makes a great save and it goes up the left side of the pitch. And, and the rest is history. The first thing I would say about that, Dan is just to hear two penalty experts having a chat about the technique of a penalty is fascinating. But forget the context and everything else that happened. Just listening to them talk about how they take penalties is really interesting. Yeah, the, the, the planted left foot as they, as they came up is not really something that, that I've ever considered. I mean, I've actually missed a penalty at, at Villa Park in, in, in my lifetime in front of the whole end, which was one of the worst moments of my life. So I can relate totally to how, <laughs> how Gary McAllister must have been feeling at the time. But I, again, I was watched the game last night and I, I did see Gary McAllister play. And I did think that was a it was an odd penalty for him to take because you you think of him with the finesse and, and side foot in a penalty and placing it. So to lash it down the middle what was an odd thing. But I've just got memories of a child as of it was obviously Yuri Geller, who seemed to be on TV a lot when I was yeah. a child. I've got a lot of memories of him being on GMTV and bending spoons and talking about weird things. But he tried to take the credit for it, didn't he? And, and said it was because of him, the power of his mind that, that the ball had moved. Sorry, are we, are we questioning that? <laughs> uh, it's a fact. I believe it's a fact. recognised that it was Yuri that did it. I believe that that's how I moved that ball. Mind power. But Ollie, that actually highlights but McAllister's point there that if he had come out um, and said, "Oh, the ball moved," he would. I mean, he would. Uh, the English media, in particular, would have ridiculed him. Or they, or they would have leapt onto the idea that Yuri Geller did, really did make the difference, or, 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 or whatever. <laughs> yes, they would. The, 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 the positive energies that that Yuri Geller had urged us all to to channel. It was it was it was really weird, wasn't it? You know, I don't think it was spotted in in. Look, this is me trying to remember watching it in a pub twenty five years ago, but I don't think it was spotted instantly that the, the ball had moved. Maybe Dan can confirm from the TV coverage that he watched, but yeah, it, it felt like it, it either became apparent sort of in the minutes afterwards and they went back and did a, a did a replay or, or at full time, but it was, it yeah, it did, the ball did move and, you know, it probably, I mean, sh- should that have been retaken? You, you could probably argue it, it should have been because it, it was, um, it was, uh, it was certainly unfortunate from Scotland's point of view. And I, I just remember thinking as well that, England had had sort of scored in the first game and and then conceded a penalty late on and it felt like that was exactly what was going to happen the same thing again and then they were going to go into this really tough game against Holland the final group game and I just remember thinking as that penalty was about to take it got you know this goes in England are 
probably going to get knocked out of the group because it would mean a, a draw and a draw and then and then Holland to come. It was still a, an astonishing save by David Seaman, by the way. I mean, it wasn't, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he'd already kind of pushed uh, pushed a shot from Gordon Jury onto the post. That would have made it one all. But if you, I mean, I've watched back, I've watched back the sort of the penalty in freeze frame, trying you know, frame by frame to try and see the ball moving. But you actually just see how instantaneous his reactions are as well, Seaman's reactions are. And of course he doesn't get, he doesn't get the credit either because everybody, everybody remembers the bit that sort of happens 30 seconds a minute later. Just before we come on to what happened the, the, the minute later, I mean, it came through there from McAllister. And did, did you find this in being present in these interviews, George, the, the pain, actually, that, that is still there in some ways. As, as McAllister said to, to Alan there, you know, he, he couldn't revisit that game for such a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm doing something, I'm writing something sort of on, on penalty shootouts at the moment, trying to sort of make it a bit a bit different. And I think that, you know, the, the thing that sort of surprised me is we all know, you know, we all know the shootout narrative. We all know the shootout stories. We know Southgate, we know Pierce and Waddle and and so on and so forth. But just how those moments live with people away from the sort of famous, famous ones. I was on the call with with Alan sort of <clears throat> I was in the background. And then what I would tend to do is I would kind of come on at the end and just and just ask stuff if I if I felt anything needed following up. And I, I kind of took my life in my hands and asked him about that again. And he he sort of shut down. I mean, there was this great freedom in, if, of the two of these kind of great old pros chatting to each other. And he just said, there was a night four years ago when I didn't think about it. It was partially tongue in cheek, but it also wasn't. I think that's the thing. These moments live with you. So you can make the argument that, you know, this was his job. It was his life. And this was the biggest game. You know, it's England versus Scotland. It's at Wembley. It's a major tournament. If Scotland had won that game, they would have gone through. They'd already drawn against Holland in their first game. And so that big moment he associates, that you know, the biggest moment he associates with, with failure. And I think those things are very, very difficult for people to get over with absolutely good reason. To the Gaza goal then, an iconic goal with an iconic celebration. Here's the man himself talking us through it. Well, after the save, Dave saved it. After the save, I'm thinking, oh, brilliant. We've got a chance here. And then when I went to Teddy, and then he's given it to Dan, and I've seen, seen a gap, and I just thought, go for it. You know, t- take a runner with it. But for Darren to play that ball was perfect. It was a great pass. So obviously, I've got into the box and I went past the other other centre half, the Celtic centre half. I went past him and then I just had a quick glimpse and I seen Colin coming and I thought, I've got him. I flicked, obviously, did the flick over him and I just thought, just connect perfect with it. I didn't really have that much time to think and I just I, I hit it, you know, and uh, the feeling was phenomenal. Oh, here's Gascoigne. Gascoigne, he can finish it here! Paul Gascoigne! 2-0! Would you believe it? So look, and I just said, look, guys, whoever scores, do, do the dentist chair, please. And obviously just get going back. But, you know, to actually see it and then actually get the goal. And I think the guys knew because when I because when I went on my back and I just pointed at the bottle, uh, they looked at the bottle and they knew they grabbed it, you know, I think. It was Teddy Shedden had sprayed it on. But it was just a feeling, the fact that, you know, you, you think two weeks before that, I was getting all that grief. I was hiding in the wheels in the hotel, keeping away from everyone, was nervous, you know, and, it, you know, see the headlines, kick him out, he shouldn't be allowed in the Euro 96. So to get that goal, that was, that was amazing. That, that raised me confidence, you know, that goal, the celebration, that's one thing no one could ever take from me. 
and I, I'm quite proud of that, you know. There's things in my life I would like to change, but obviously I can't now, but the only thing is I'm improve it, you know. And I, I try my best. I'm not brilliant at it, but I do try. One of the things, George, that uh, I've always thought about that was in the heat of the moment, having scored an unbelievable goal in a game against Scotland in a major tournament, to remember to do your planned celebration, <laughs> I, find, I find quite remarkable because, you know, it, the, the intensity and the pressure and everything else to score that kind of goal and yet still remember, quick, get the bottle, do the celebration, I find remarkable. Yeah, but then I suppose it had been such a big part of the build-up, hadn't this? I mean, it was what everybody was talking about. It was this, you know, he was on the front page of tabloids in the dentist chair or, or celebrating and things like that. And again, there's a bit of confusion about whose idea it actually was. Gaza sort of understandably takes credit for that, but it seems, you know, there's a, there's been a bit of debate about who came up with it and when and where, whether it was on the bus, whether it was in the dressing room or whatever. But Paul, there's a great quote from Paul Ince, where he said he was some other part of the pitch. And he's thinking, what the fuck? You know, he's actually said, what the fuck? Just fuck it. Oh, Dennis Chair, okay, fine. Yeah, just get on with it. Can we win this game, please? But it was just that perfect moment, wasn't it? I mean, the goal itself was extraordinary. The flick itself is, you know, is uh, is a work of art, as indeed was the build-up to it. But, the you know, the the celebration was a work, work of art in itself too. And it's just with that iconic image of them all doing that. Shearer, by the way, Absolutely, in the thick of it, he was the one squirting the, squirting the 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 water bottle. But just just a perfect perfect moment. That, the the ins comment there, Ollie, is really interesting because because there will be players on the side who go, oh, hang on a minute, this isn't over. It's only you know it's only our second. We still got to protect the lead, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Maybe that's the the Roy Keane effect on Paul Ins <laughs> through the Manchester United midfield coming through. It was obviously the goal was scored and and. Was it three or four players? I remember Sheringham and Shearer and McManaman being in there. And and yeah, I, I imagine the rest of them were just sort of um, trotting back to the halfway line. And it wasn't this sort of huge, sort of the whole team orchestrated um, thing. It was it was sort of four or five players, but it, it was it was very it was a very sort of clever and and funny and I mean clearly not spontaneous, but but it was it was a great send up of of what had happened and and sort of. Owning, re-owning that that, that uh, the, the dentist chair. If England had got knocked out, and um, you know the dentist chair would be remembered as as in notoriety rather than this moment that triggered a, a funny celebration of a fondly remembered goal at a fondly remembered campaign, it would be very different, wouldn't it? My thought, just watching you know watching back that cast of goal and the flick is obviously magnificent. It's a you know beautifully weighted and the, the shot is perfect technique. But what I think it probably underlines is with Gaza. I think people who have probably only just seen a few highlights of him, maybe that goal, maybe you know the Cruyff turn against um, Holland in 1990, and and various you know various dribbles and so on. But the the thing about him was he was incredibly skillful, but he was also sort of really at his best. He was adrenaline fueled, and I remember a couple of goals he scored for Tottenham in their FA Cup run in '91, where he was just like incredible technique, but he was just piling forward, and just you could almost sort of sense the steam coming out of his nose and he was like that with that goal it was it was adrenaline it was really aggressive to carry that out that technique it was also aggressively done it wasn't just sort of balletic artistic brilliant it was real powerful aggressive dynamic run. violent artistry is what it was and he was elbows he was powerful he was big he was powerful I mean I remember that so vividly from watching him 
at Newcastle. And by the way, he's the person that made me sort of look at football and look at football in a way that was poetic and beautiful. But it wasn't, you know, absolutely, it wasn't that sort of nimble. It wasn't the nimbleness of a of a gymnast. It, he was able to dribble the ball in a straight line through people. And that's because of how powerful he was. He was elbows, you know, he was sharp elbows, but, you know, still something absolutely sort of magical about it. But no, he was, you know, he had that physical ability to get through people, not around, not around people, just, you know, but still stunning in its own way. He talked there, George, about, you know, the, the difficulty and the build-up to the tournament for him and so on and, and so forth and that release. But a bit like we talked about earlier, you know, England's t- tumultuous six years from from 1993 to Euro 96. It's it's the same for Gascoigne as well, isn't it? I mean, what what he went through in those six years, some of it self-inflicted, was a lot. I mean, that the release is not just the dentist chair and what happened two weeks before the tournament. There's more to it than that. No, absolutely. And as you say, a lot of it self-inflicted, but sort of huge trauma in his life. And, you know, you sort of look back now and... Um, I think we all sort of asked the question about whether he was equipped to sort of deal with it. But you go back to 1990 and the kid crying on the pitch, who'd just done this sort of extraordinary stuff. So incredibly important, I think, to us as a footballing nation, because that was the moment when football really exploded. It was very, football became fashionable. He led that. It was all about, it was sort of all about him. And he makes, you know, that it makes me emotional sort of thinking about that, because I think the times in my life when I felt most English, R 1990, the summer of 1990, and probably 1996, a sort of close second, which is a what football can do, but it's also about the, it's also about the sort of moment, the historical moment. Um, I won't kind of, I won't digress too much on that. He'd been through this sort of traumatic existence, and it has to be remembered, he was playing for Rangers at that point. So you know, this game was personal for him in a way that it probably, I mean, people were having their own little battles across the pitch. It was Shearer against Colin Hendry. You know, that was a sort of big, you know, that was a big deal because they were teammates at Blackburn. And we did think about football much more in those individual battle terms, but it was also, you know, it was kind of Gaza against Scotland because that's where he was playing at the time. Is that for you, Dan, the most iconic England goal ever? And I, and I, and I stress iconic rather than best because I think, I, th- I think if you, for it to be an iconic goal, it has to take into account who scored it, the, the setting, the opposition. There's a lot that goes goes into it. You know, Yarmolenko scored an unbelievable goal for Ukraine last night, but it's in a three-two defeat against the Dutch in the opening their opening game of the tournament. That's something to be an iconic goal, I would imagine, in Ukrainian football history. I mean, I think we all know by now that the Gary Neville cross was more iconic than the, than, the, than the Gaza goal. But in terms of when I when I think of England and when I think of the international team, the first thing that comes into my mind is that Gaza goal. And it will be the same for people of my generation, people of other generations. I'd imagine 70, 80%, oh, I mean, people that are around, obviously, when England won the World Cup will think of England winning the World Cup. But because I haven't seen any success, the thing I think of is that Gaza goal. And that was really what, ignited England in Euro 96. That was what gave them liftoff, carried them into that magnificent Holland game and made the tournament what, what it was. And the fact that Gaza, like like you say, did play for Rangers and there was all those battles, that was the, the big moment. I hadn't really seen much of Gaza because he wasn't part of the, of the Premier League. So I'd, I'd never really seen him play. So this was my first exposure to him as well. And he, he just seemed magical because that there was no one like him. So yeah, when, when I think of England, that is the moment that I think of. 
Well, after that England-Scotland game, England went on to be uh, glorious in beating the Dutch. They then had the penalty victory against Spain and then that crushing disappointment of the semi-final defeat against Germany and Gareth Southgate's penalty miss. The players, though, look back on Euro 96 with real pride at what they achieved. Here once again, Ince, Sheringham and Gascoigne on what it was like to be in the middle of it all. I just, when I, walk, I just remember going out and doing the national anthem and just seeing all the fans there. And, you know, even, even, even on the country's journey out, you know, just going up to Walls Wembley, you know, people hanging out at the windows and people hanging out at the pubs. And, you know, the longer we went into the tournament, the more people were hanging out at the pubs and the cars were beeping and that. But that particular day, um, you know, it was just unreal, you know. And, and, and the Scottish fans were brilliant, looking up there and seeing all the tartan caps they had on. And yeah. it, it was just, it's everything you want to be involved in. Yeah, you know? just... I just remember the whole just built up, built up, ex, ex, next game, going into it, the whole nation getting behind of us, the, the adrenaline buzzing through the camp and going into the next game and the next game. When we played Holland and when Terry Venable says, look, all you got to do is play them at their own game. And we did, you know, and I've looked at some of the highlights of that. Well, I watched the game and, you know, I think I worked hard for the lads and, I think to beat them 4-1. And I remember David Platt coming on and he, I gave him the ball and he gave me the ball and he went, go on, it's your game. And then when you've got like, you know, you've got a, a, a stadium of 90, come 100,000 people and you, like, you've got Gary Neville, Man United. You've got the other player playing for Chelsea. You've got the others for Liverpool. Obviously, when you've got 90,000 singing your name for the last few minutes, I, I actually went back to my hotel room and saw crying my eyes out. I was just so sorry, I nearly cried now. <laughs> Yeah, I was so proud, you know, and obviously to beat them and you get a goal. Sheila got, a, I mean, Teddy got a couple of goals because obviously we used scoring, the pressure was on him. So him to get a couple, you get your goal as well, you know, and to batter them at their own game, it was fantastic, you know. And then that's when I thought we're going to win this. I think we would have if it would be Germany, you know. I feel quite emotional listening to, to Gascoigne there. Ollie, do you know, I, I always, when I was growing up, I used to, used to hear people hark back and talk about the 60s and how great the 60s were and how much fun they were. And I thought, really, why, why do you hark back to the past? And now I'm turning into one of those people because I, honestly, Ollie, after the last five or six years, I just think, bloody hell, I miss the late 90s. I miss, like, you know, everything from about 95, 96. Well, the 90s as a whole, but particularly... 96 seemed to set us just on an amazingly enjoyable few years. Maybe it was my age at the time. I don't know. No, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm sure part of it is part of it is age, but no, I mean, I mean, the 2018 World Cup was was good, and England got to the the, the semi final and so on. But but that you know, 90 and 96 were times when I think the whole country really kind of embraced what was happening in in front of them and and it was these these games that were like roller coaster rides it wasn't like um that sort of fairly tepid win over tunisia and panama and sweden that england had at the last um world cup it was games that the, the wins they weren't necessarily tournaments full of great performances but the highs were really high and the lows in terms of the performance, I mean, England battled through those games. You know, the game against Spain in Euro '96, and the, the the games against sort of Belgium and Cameroon in 1990, where they where they scrapped and rode their luck. But though, but yeah, though, the, the the 90s in terms of England, it was it it felt it felt very different to how it certainly felt in the 2010s when everything felt completely miserable. 
It's that sense of human epic, isn't it? I mean, I think tournament football at its best is an epic because, of course, it lasts a month or whatever. And so you have all these stories that kind of come and go. But 96, it feels like it sort of had all the elements of of that sort of epic thing. And, uh, you know, in purely sporting sense and, you know, very mindful of what I'm saying, bearing in mind what happened, what we saw happen on the pitch pitch the other day, but it, you know, it, it has the sort of the sporting tragedy at the end of it. It has Germany again. It has the penalties again, but it has Stuart Pearce's redemption, you know, against Spain. They, they play Holland off the pitch and then have a really tough grind against Spain, but you see all that emotion coming out of Stuart Pearce's face when he converts that penalty you've got the kind of whole Gaza redemption sort of song as well and that's that's it 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 took us to every single part of the emotional spectrum I mean it was disgruntlement at the start it was tension you know but it was joy it was triumph it was bittersweet of the of the near miss yet again which of course is 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 very much part of our psyche when it comes to tournaments but it captured everything it captured the mood of the nation it it was here so you know there was that you know sense of scale to it as well and football at its best tournament football at its best touches you in a way that no other kind of football football can it was just beautiful it was this huge 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 scale event yeah, I feel I feel the same. Like I hark back to '96, and and I look at it with these rose tinted glasses of it just been the best time ever. Because football has cheated me since then. Because <laughs> in '96 was the last that, that was the last time Villa won anything. So '94 and '96 Villa won the Coca Cola Cup. So I thought uh, Villa will win things every few years. That that's what happens, and they haven't won anything since '96. I was at Euro '96, watching Euro '96, thinking England are brilliant. They're going to win it, and then from the moment they lost that penalty shootout. I've just been miserable ever since. Nothing, nothing good really happened to any of my teams since then. So it, it kind of, kind of has wronged me a little bit. But I thought yesterday with with England, uh, uh, sorry Sunday with England at Wembley again, I got the vibe of of Euro '96 again in that win. I got, I got, the, I got the feel good. I felt felt like something special was happening. So I'm, I'm probably setting myself up for a fall. But Sunday was the, the closest I've kind of felt watching England again. But it's the most connected I've felt to an England team again. I think this year, I think I think since '96, this is the most connected I've felt. I think that's a great point. I mean, I think in fact, Alan Shearer said that sort of in his introduction on the on the on the BBC coverage that you know, not trying to say that this is football coming home again and and all that kind of stuff, but we have that sense that. If football represents anything, it is that sense of home. It's people, you know, it's other people basically is what it is. And suddenly we have this, you know, with the world just bursting to sort of be released from what we've all kind of gone through over the last 16 months. Or is that just feeling of just wanting to let go and wanting to be part of something and you know, needing needing to needing to kind of feel something, anything again. And I agree with Dan, seeing, seeing and kind of more importantly, probably hearing Wembley. Uh, like that was was just very 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 special and you know that's exactly what 96 was it was that sort of just huge explosion of sort of noise and sound and feeling and togetherness and there was some brilliant football in it but iconic moments absolutely wherever you wherever you looked connections the key connections the key isn't it ollie and that's what both dan and george have have said there and 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 connection can come in all sorts of you know, forms. It can come and connect with that Euro 96 team because 
we, we we were probably behaving in a similar way today were when they when they go back to that dentist chair and the alcohol and you 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 relate to the the flawed human being of wanting to get pissed sometimes and so on and so forth equally now i, I look at this in team and I, I i can connect with them because they're just decent they're just Decent individuals, you know. Calvin Phillips in a post-match interview with us yesterday, just you know, he kept saying thank you. It's like no, <laughs> you don't have to thank us for praising you. You know, just tell us how you did it, and and they just seem really, really nice, nice blokes. When we emphasize that point and how sort of relatable this this England team and England squad is, I, I don't think that's ever you know. If I look back to, you know. David Beckham and Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard and people like that, you know, they they, they were entirely relatable and decent people as, as well. But there was always this feeling watching that England team that, that there were sort of, I don't know, collectively, they weren't as relatable collectively, I don't think. And and, and there was a, and there was also, there was also the feeling that, you know, that the club careers were all consuming and, and some of them have talked about that and how, they never really sort of got it together as a team or, or, or often didn't um, get it together as, as a team um, with England at tournaments. And that it's those moments when an England, you know, a group of really good individuals comes together as, 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 a, as a national team at a tournament, which England did in 90. They did in 96. I think they did with a lesser group of players in 2018. And I think this group of players looks like, you know, it's, it's very relatable. They have a very sort of strong sense of what playing for England means and and what they're required to do on the pitch. I think Gareth Southgate has been very good at that. But I, yeah, I, I think they're relatable. And I think they're relatable not just to sort of football fans like us and football media like us, but I think they're, I think it's a group of players that perhaps you, your average sort of very casual football fan or, or maybe somebody who isn't, you know, somebody who isn't into football, they could end up getting on the bandwagon with this team the way they perhaps did in 96 and did in 1990. And that, that's one thing I remember in those two World Cups where you'd suddenly get people who had no interest in football suddenly sounding like they, they knew who the England team were. And, and, and sometimes as football obsessives, we get really very defensive about our sport and people jumping on the bandwagon and getting into it. But you know England are doing well when people who have no interest in football suddenly get on the bandwagon. That was certainly the case in Euro 96. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is The England Show from The Athletic. Keep up to date with all of our Euro 2020 podcasts and writing by following us at The Athletic UK. The Alan Shearer Euro 96 article is on The Athletic now uh, and you can get it for £1 a month, the whole of the site, for six months if you go to theathletic.com slash England pod. So theathletic.com slash England pod, you get all The Athletic articles, including Shearer's Euro 96 one for £1 a month for six months. Quick one from all of you on actually England uh, against Scotland this time around on Friday. Do you see it, uh, George, first of all, as being as tight as it was 25 years ago? 
I think part, partly that because the formats change, and I don't, I, I hate this new format where effectively, you know, three teams can qualify from a from a group. So I think it loses its jeopardy. I mean, obviously, England have started very well, which is makes a massive change because they certainly didn't do that in '96. They didn't do it in 1990 either. So they've, I mean, they've taken a lot of pressure off themselves. I, I, I mean, I still think there will be that sense of occasion and and pressure simply because of who they're playing. But it's a slightly, you know, I think there's a slightly sort of different backdrop to it. I mean, I hope I hope there is a bit of that ferocity because I miss that. You know, I do miss that about football and that sort of sense of having to win your your personal battle first. I would like to see a bit of that. I would like a bit of rawness to the occasion. And I hope, you know, in a respectful and sort of fun way, I hope there's a bit of that. I hope there's a bit of that. Ollie? We're recording this before Scotland play Czech Republic on Monday. Man for man, you would say England are, are stronger in most positions. I think, you know, maybe, yeah, probably not left back and probably not one, you know, maybe one other, I would say. And that isn't arrogance. I think that's just in terms of this, the standard and status that, that those players are, are playing at, but they are, they're very good players that, you know, they're, they're very good players and, and Scotland have generally had a knack over the last few years of being sort of equal or greater than some of their parts again. And, and that's what England have generally not been at tournaments. They're going to have to be sort of equal or greater than some of their parts if, if they're going to do something. I think the win over Croatia was quite encouraging in that regard. I, I wouldn't go crazy about the performance, but it was it, it was a really positive start. Uh, Dan, you're, you're going to be uh, in charge of the England show tomorrow as we continue uh, our build-up to the game on Friday. So how do you see it at this stage? Because obviously, as Ollie says, this is before Scotland have played Czech Republic. Tomorrow, when you're hosting, it'll be after that. So maybe your opinion will change on tomorrow's pod. I think obviously it's a it's a really big game. I think I think it'll actually in a, in a lot of ways be tougher for England than, than the opening game against Croatia. I know it's kind of easy to say that now after the game's taken place, but I would have said that probably beforehand because I think for all the good things that we've just levelled at England, I think a lot of that can be levelled at the Scotland camp as, as well. Now I, th- I think they're in as good a place as they've been for a number of years. And I just think with the fact it's been so long since they qualified for a major tournament, I think they are going to be massively, massively up for it. And I, I think there will be some spice. I think it'll be a really entertaining game. I think there will be that need or like a, like a derby game in, in the Premier League or, or in Scotland. I think it's going to be intense and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, but I think it'll be tight. Great stuff, everybody. Uh, George, Ollie, thank you. Dan, thank you as well. Dan in charge then tomorrow as we continue our build-up to England against Scotland, which is on Friday. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.